to to turn to Mark chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 14. And our text this evening will be the first 11 verses of Mark 14. As you turn there, let me begin to give you a little bit of an orientation to where we are. There's a transition as we come now to Mark 14. And it's a significant one because now there's going to be a focus upon the passion narrative of Christ. That is the narrative of his suffering and of his death, which is in chapters 14 and 15. All the way back in chapter 8, we saw Jesus began to start telling his disciples what would happen to him, the suffering that he would face, and it would be in Jerusalem, he said. And then from that point on to the end of chapter 10, Jesus and the 12 are en route to Jerusalem. He has his face set toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him there. In chapter 11, he draws near to the city and then enters the city. We call it the triumphal entry. And then he goes into the temple. And we saw there in chapters 11 and 12, those took place on Monday and Tuesday of his final week, which we call Passion Week sometimes. And that was mostly in the temple. We saw all of that conflict that he had there with the religious authorities. And then we just completed chapter 13, which was our Lord's discourse on the Mount of Olives. And that was probably Tuesday evening. Now, it's still Tuesday And we read these words at the beginning of chapter 14, that after two days it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you look at the parallel text in Matthew 26, Jesus says these words, You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This after two days points us to Thursday evening. This is when he's going to have the Passover meal with his disciples in that upper room. And it's also the night in which he will be betrayed. And after that, he will be arrested in the garden. Friday morning, he's going to face the Sanhedrin, and then he's going to face Pilate, and he will be crucified after being scourged and mocked and beaten and spit upon. On the third day, he will rise again, and that's the focus of chapter 16 in Mark's gospel. So that's just a quick sketch of where we've been recently and where we're going in the gospel of Mark. We're about 80% of the way done. There's three chapters left. Chapter 14 is the longest. Chapter 16, even with the long ending, we won't go into that now, but even with the long ending, it's the shortest of all of the chapters in Mark. Our text tonight. We see that all of the mounting hostility toward Jesus nearly comes to a head. And especially when an insider conspires with Jesus' enemies to betray him. But in the midst of this darkness, and it's literally sandwiched in the midst of this darkness, a beautiful account of love and devotion to Jesus. So let's read Mark 14 verses 1 to 11. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. 
and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table or reclined at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Let's pray again for God's help. Father, we thank you for these words before us. We pray that you would help us to understand them, that you would give us strength in these moments, that we would benefit from the preaching. Help me, anoint me by your spirit, and all who hear your word, that we would receive it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. From ancient times, people have been building monuments. It might just be a pile of stones or a gravestone. It could be a statue or an elaborate structure. People build monuments, something meant to stand in memory of a person or sometimes a particular action or an event, even a period of history or a movement. So we have the Reformation Wall that's in Geneva, Switzerland, which causes us to remember the Reformation and the major players in the Reformation. We have several examples of this in the Word of God. Think of Jacob and the memorial stone at Bethel in Genesis 28. Or Joshua and the 12 memorial stones in the midst of the Jordan after they had crossed. That was in Joshua 4. Samuel and the memorial stone, which he called Ebenezer. And he set it up between Mizpah and Shin, 1 Samuel 7. Even the Passover, the day and the feast, which was given by God, is said to be a memorial to the people of God. So that they would ask, what is this for? And they were to remember how God delivered them. And of course, we think of what that points to for us as New Covenant believers. Another meal, which is a memorial to us, which we do in remembrance of Christ. We take the Lord's Supper. Well, in our text, the actions of an unnamed woman in anointing or really drenching Jesus with fragrant oil is, is said to be an enduring monument or memorial to this woman. As Jesus says, and he says it strongly, assuredly, I say to you, verse 9, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. It stands as a monument. Now, this is one of four anointing accounts that we find in the Gospels. If you would look in Luke 7, there's a record there, and that records a different occasion. In Galilee, in the house of Simon, but a different Simon, it was a common name. This was Simon of Pharisee. Matthew 26, 
verses 6 to 13 is our parallel text, parallel to the account here in Mark 14 in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And then John 12, 1 to 8. It's also said in Bethany, the host is not named. All we read is that they... The citizens of Bethany made Jesus a supper. And this was in response to Jesus' raising of Lazarus. And as you look at that, there are some obvious differences, but there's no contradictions. So most commentators would say that this records the same event. And I would agree. The greatest challenge with that is sorting out the time references in John 12 and in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. And that's a task I'll leave to the commentators. You can read them. There's one explicit monument in our text, the one that Jesus mentions, but there's others too. And I want us to think about them tonight. And the first we might call bad monuments or monuments of disgrace. And the first one is the wickedness of Christ's enemies. And even one of his own friends or so-called friends who ate bread with him. And the first thing we see are these Jewish religious authorities in verses 1 to 2. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, sometimes the elders are added to this list, they sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. By now, we're not surprised at all by this hostility and their plans to take Jesus and to kill him. In fact, since chapter 2, opposition to Jesus has been mounting, rising all throughout the gospel. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that the Pharisees and Herodians began to plot the destruction of Jesus. In chapter 11, verse 18, after Jesus cleansed the temple, as we say, We read these words that the scribes and the chief priests sought how they might destroy him. Chapter 12, verse 12, they sought to lay hands on him. In our text, though, we do learn that they're seeking a way to arrest him by trickery, to do this in stealth, quietly, cunningly, because of the popularity that Jesus enjoyed among the common people at this time. And also the very real possibility of causing an uproar of the people who had gathered there in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem at the time of this great pilgrim feast was bursting at the seams, we might say. People were converging on Jerusalem and there were these great crowds and it was a very real possibility that an uproar could be stirred up if they would do anything against Jesus openly. Christ's enemies wanted to wait until the feast was over. And this includes the Passover and then the feast that immediately follows in his seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But they said, let's wait. They were all in agreement on this. It says that they were saying, not during the feast, not during the feast. Yes, we want to wait. They wanted to wait until the feast was over. They wanted to wait until the crowds were gone from the city. But notice that God is in control of the timing of events. God has an appointed hour for his son. And these enemies of Christ are not in control. And so we find that he is 
taken during the feast. And there's this beautiful imagery then of Christ as our Passover lamb slain for us. So we're reminded as we think about this and what the enemies of Christ would have done in waiting, we're reminded that even in the darkest deed of history, as it was being carried out and plotted, it's ruled over by a sovereign God who's working out all of these things according to his plan at his time and not the timing that they would like to have. And it's for his glory and the everlasting good of countless sinners. He was taken by lawless hands. We read that in Acts. He was murdered. Yet it was, as we read in Acts 2.23, it was by the determined purpose of God and the foreknowledge of God. You remember Joseph and how he was thrown into that pit. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And at the end of it all, in Genesis 50, there's that great statement that he makes After years of theological reflection on what has happened to him, he says, you meant evil against me. He's speaking to his brothers. But God meant it for good to save many. These enemies of Christ, they mean evil against Christ. And they actually succeed in killing him. But it's exactly according to plan that many, many sinners would be saved. So we have the enemies of Christ. Their wicked intentions are settled. All they lack is an opportunity, which to their joy comes from an unexpected source, an insider, one of the 12. So let's look now as we're thinking about these bad monuments and the wickedness of Christ's enemies. We have to look at Judas. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. And you skip down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, and it's important that it's following this account of the anointing. It also follows it in Matthew. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. They were rejoicing, and they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Judas is only mentioned by name three times in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 3, we have his name in the list of apostles, and he's listed there last, and he's described as him who also betrayed Jesus, handed him over. We have it here in our text, of course, and then later in chapter 14, there when he does betray him, he's described again as one of the twelve. Why is he described as one of the twelve? I think we're meant to stop and think about that. One of the twelve. Jesus' chosen few to be in his inner circle. He was set apart with eleven others. Chosen by Christ, we read earlier in Mark, to be with Christ. Even to share in his ministry. So in Acts 1, they say that he who became a guide to those who were arresting Jesus was one who also obtained a part in the apostolic ministry. This is Judas. Judas learned from Jesus day after day as he followed him. Judas ate meals with Jesus. He was a familiar friend with Jesus. He heard him preaching and teaching again and again and again. He saw him working miracles 
Jesus even gave him, along with the other apostles, authority and sent them out to preach and to cast out demons even. So here is this close companion of Jesus. And yet it was he who also betrayed him. So the words of Psalm 41.9 are fulfilled in this, where we read that even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, has betrayed me. That is fulfilled. Now, at least one motive is implied in our text. Why would Judas do this other than the fact that Satan had entered his heart and it's, it's the wickedness of his own heart? What was his motive? Well, we can imply from our text that greed was one of the motives. A love of money had gripped him and had overcome him that he would do such a thing that he would forsake the Lord. Matthew tells us very plainly that Judas asked, what are you willing to give me? We're only told in Mark that they had promised to give him money. But we look at Matthew and he comes to them and says, what will you give me if I betray him? What kind of money will you hand over to me? And we see that the promised sum there is 30 pieces of silver. And it was enough for Judas. In John 12, we learn that it was Judas who spoke up here and asked this question. Why was this wasted, this oil? We we read that it was Judas who spoke up about the 300 denarii saying this could have been sold for this huge sum of money and given to the poor. But John tells us plainly by the spirit that he cared not for the poor. That's not why he said that, but because he was a thief and had the money box And he used to take what was put in it. So without doubt, this is one of the motives, greed and a love of money. Now, these two monuments of disgrace, these Jewish religious authorities who seek to take Jesus and kill him, and even Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, they stand preserved in the word of God as warnings to us. And even declarations of woe, we might say, against these sins of rejecting Christ. And they knew much about Christ. They heard him preach and they rejected him. This is a monument, a warning of this sin of unbelief and of the sin of greed and of the destructiveness of the love of money. So as we look at this, we ought to think about that. All who would be controlled like Judas by a love of money, who are overcome by greed, will do it to their destruction. Those who are willing, we might say, to sell their soul in order to gain the world, even willing to disown Christ if they might gain a few possessions in this life. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve God and mammon or money or possessions, the stuff of this world. You can't do it. You can't serve them both. We see that very clearly And the example of Judas. In 1 Timothy, we read these words, which are meant to get our attention. In 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul is writing, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And you wonder if he had Judas even in mind as an example of that. There's another monument that falls under this heading in our text, this heading of bad monuments or monuments of disgrace. And it's what I'm calling the insensitivity or the spiritual dullness of those who were at the dinner and were criticizing this woman. Their insensitivity, their spiritual dullness. This woman does something beautiful and timely to Jesus and they object They're angry. They criticize her openly and supposedly for noble purposes, concern for the poor. We read that they were indignant. It's a strong word. They were very angry. They saw it as a tragic waste to do this to Jesus. They saw it even as a missed opportunity. Think of how many poor people could have been cared for. They proceeded to criticize her sharply. We read about that in verses 4 and 5. And for what? This good thing done for Jesus in advance preparation for his burial. That's why they're criticizing her. Matthew actually tells us it was the disciples who were troubling her. It just says they here in Mark, but Matthew's more specific and says it was the disciples. Not just Judas. Judas was the one that had spoken up. But they're all criticizing her. And they're all irritated and even very angry about this. Troubling this godly woman. And we're not really too surprised because we've seen the dullness of the disciples. It's been something of a minor theme even in the Gospels that they still have much to learn from Jesus about the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God. To just give you one example, you remember when children were brought to Jesus and they would forbid the children. Don't bring children to Jesus. Maybe they're thinking he's too busy, he's too important. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, let the little children come to me. Of such is the kingdom of God. It's the same sort of spiritual dullness. Them rebuking this woman for doing a beautiful thing to Jesus. Now, let's just suppose that the disciples, not Judas, we know it was in his heart, but let's just suppose the disciples really were concerned about the poor. We still have to ask the question, what have they failed to see? With this concern, a good concern, a righteous concern, what have they failed to see and to understand at this moment? Because the idea of selling goods and giving to the poor is not a bad one. Jesus had just suggested, or more than that, commanded to a rich young ruler that he do that. Sell your goods, give to the poor, you'll have treasures in heaven. So maybe they got the idea from Jesus himself. It's back in chapter 10 of Mark. And we also know, reading the histories, that care for the poor received a particular emphasis at Passover time. It was something that you did. You gave gifts to the poor at Passover time. But here's what they failed to see. Firstly, the unique opportunity at the present moment. Look at verse 7. When Jesus is answering them, rebuking them, we could even say, He's saying, why, why do you trouble her? She's done a good work. In verse 7, for you have the poor with you always. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 15, 11. 
You have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. And certainly he means you should do them good as you have opportunity. But here's the key, but me, you do not have always. Me, you do not have always. It will just be a matter of days, and he will be gone. So there's a unique opportunity here, and they have failed to see it, but this woman has not. They've also failed to see just how timely and appropriate the woman's actions are. Recall verse 8, she's done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. It was an appropriate thing, a good and right thing that she do this. So they did not see that. There's dullness, there's insensitivity in these disciples. Now, this monument, this spiritual dullness of the disciples, it's a good reminder for us. I have to be honest, it's somewhat encouraging as I think of their dullness and their flaws, and I'm reminded that, yes, even those close to Jesus can have these blind spots. And there's grace and there's forgiveness, and God grows us. But we're all too often dull and like these disciples allowing worldly wisdom to cloud our spiritual senses, to control our thinking and our actions rather than the values of the kingdom of God and rather than love for Christ. I'd like to think that I would have commended this woman rather than rebuking her, but I'm not so sure that I wouldn't have joined with these disciples in criticizing her for this beautiful thing that she did. So those are the bad monuments, the monuments of disgrace that we see in this text. But there are also, secondly, beautiful monuments. Beautiful monuments, monuments of devotion to Christ. And one is just a little monument, and I don't have much to say about it, but it's Simon the leper. Because we're told that Simon had Jesus at his house, and he was hosting this dinner that they gave for him. Not much more that I can say about that. We don't really know anything about Simon the leper. But this little monument here is certainly one of honor to this man. And at the very least, he was a friend and he was committed to Jesus. But almost certainly, I would think he was a disciple of Jesus and wished to truly honor Jesus. Now, since he's hosting this dinner, he's most likely not still a leper. That's just not something you did in that culture. But it's possible that he was a leper that had been healed and even by Jesus. We don't know. It's possible. So that's one beautiful little monument, Simon the leper hosting this dinner. But we look more fully at The one that Jesus says is a monument and a memorial. And it's this unnamed woman in the text, unnamed also in Matthew. But when we look at John, we're told her name is Mary. And this isn't Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So this unnamed woman here is Mary. And she lavishes very expensive ointment or perfume upon Jesus. Look again at the text. She comes during the meal while Jesus is reclining at table. That was the posture that you ate. Look at verse 3. As Jesus sat or reclined at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil 
of spikenard. She comes in to this meal holding in her hands a small vase of perfume containing an extremely valuable ointment or an oil, however you want to translate that. But it's called very costly oil of spikenard. I think a better translation would be pure nard instead of spikenard. Pure and precious oil or ointment of nard in this little vase that she is carrying. And all we really need to know about this perfume, it would be interesting to study this and to look into all of the history. But really all we need to know is what Mark tells us, that it was very, very precious. It was pure. It was a prized possession. It's the kind of thing you kept secure and safe and reserved for a special occasion and quite likely would not even use in your lifetime, but would pass it on to the next generation. This probably was a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation, given its extreme value and preciousness. So it's only something for very special use. And assuming the estimation of its value is right, in verse 5, it's estimated to be 300 denarii. That was, at that time, a year's wages. Roughly a denarius a day was what a, a, a worker in that time would have earned. So this is a year's wages. It could have been sold for more than that, it was said. And if that estimation of the value is correct, then we get a pretty good sense of how valuable and significant this action is as she breaks it open and she pours it all out upon Jesus. It's hard for us to get a picture of this. I was, I was trying, even as I was thinking about this, it's hard for us to really appreciate this. And maybe even the shock that those who were there, the disciples and Lazarus and maybe others who were there, would have had when she would have dumped this out, all of it, upon Jesus. But if you think back to Mark 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And really, that was just the men that didn't, that didn't count the women and the children. So easily 10,000, probably more people. And you remember that Jesus said, why don't you give them something to eat? And they're thinking, how are we going to do that? And they said, are we to go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and feed this vast multitude? So 200 denarii could have fed a huge crowd of poor and needy people, filled up their bellies, 10,000 plus people. This was worth more than that, 300 denarii. So it gives you a sense of the value. And it was all poured out in a matter of moments. So the response of the disciples is at least understandable. It's not justifiable, but it's understandable. When we read then that she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Well, Jesus comes to her defense, and he essentially says, leave her alone and stop troubling her because she's done something beautiful, something excellent, 
something good to me is what Jesus says. He says, starting there at verse 7, you have the poor always with you. Whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. In advance, she has come to anoint his body for burial. Did she fully understand what she was doing? Did she know the full significance of her actions? Did she know she was doing something so excellent that people hundreds of years down the road would be speaking of what she had done? As Jesus said, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Surely she did this with very little self-consciousness. I can't imagine her thinking about how excellent her actions were as she's carrying in this precious ointment and as she breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head and thinking, wow, I'm doing something really excellent for my Lord or thinking people are going to remember me for this. That's not how true devotion works. True devotion to Christ A mark of true devotion is self-denial and self-forgetfulness. She has forgotten herself in this, and she's wrapped up in Jesus and who he is and this moment, and she anoints him. As to understanding what she was doing, I, I really think we cannot say much. The full significance of her actions surely was not known to her, but I am not prepared to rule out that she knew that in advance she was preparing Jesus' body for burial. Jesus says to her, she has done what she could. Given her opportunity, given her resources, that she had this thing that had been in her possession probably for some time, she did what she could for Jesus at the time that she could do it. And this was well-pleasing To Jesus, and not because of the immense value of what was poured upon him, but about the heart behind what was done. We only have to remember another woman who's not named except as a poor widow, and the two little tiny coins that she had thrown into the temple treasury. And Jesus was sitting and observing, and he called his disciples over and said, she has given more than all of the rich people who were throwing in all their coins into the treasury. So Jesus sees what we don't see. Again, we're invited to see through Jesus' eyes this woman and to see as he sees this beautiful act. He was well pleased with the heart that motivated this action. And as we think about this and these words of Jesus, she has done what she can. Those are worth meditating on. You think, given your opportunities, given your resources, given your station in life, given your particular calling in life, what can you do for Jesus? And he expects nothing more and nothing less. Your resources, your opportunities, your gifts, your station in life, what can you do for Jesus at this time in your life? 
The words of a well-known poem come to my mind. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Those are the words of C.T. Stubb. So as we look at and reflect upon this beautiful monument here, we should consider what this act of devotion expresses or what's behind this act of devotion to Jesus. And certainly there is faith. She not only knows who Jesus is, the Son of God, she not only believes that he is the Son of God, but clearly she has faith in him. She believes in him. And what a contrast here, and even a rebuke to the religious authorities who should have known better, the scribes who were the experts in the law, supposedly, and yet they reject Christ. She embraces him in faith. And as one man said, well, that she even pours out her future, in a sense, in pouring out this precious ointment. She pours it out upon his head. Because this would have been the kind of thing you could say for a rainy day. Sort of a, we might say, a retirement fund or a rainy day fund or something that you could sell if you were in a pinch. But here's her future, here's her security, and she pours it out upon the head of Jesus. This is, this is trust. She's committing herself to Jesus. What about gratitude? Surely this is an act of wholehearted devotion that's fueled by thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord. And then certainly overflowing love, as, as it's been said. Here is an overflowing love for Jesus. Just as she's pouring out this oil in abundance, it's an abundance of love to Jesus. So freely and generously giving what she had pouring this precious perfume upon the head of Jesus. And we know from John, even upon his feet, so abundant was the amount that was poured out. She poured it even on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Here's love for Christ, a beautiful picture of love for the Savior. And like Paul, her love for Christ trumped, surpassed all other loves. The love of stuff in this life, Christ was her chief love, so that she also might say with Paul, as we read in Philippians 3, 8, that I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Well, may this monument challenge us. It ought to challenge us. It ought to stir up in us also greater love for Christ and faith and gratitude for who Christ is and all that he has done for us. But if we only see in this monument the devotion of a godly woman in doing this beautiful thing for Jesus at just the right time, then we've missed the heart of the matter. The account is not ultimately about this woman and her devotion to Jesus, but the account is about the one who is the object of her devotion and of her love and of her faith and of her gratitude. And so I want us to look finally and thirdly at the greatest monument that we have in this text, and that is a monument of the boundless love of Jesus for sinners. A monument of Christ's love for sinners. The whole text from beginning to end is a monument to Christ's love. Think about it. Verses 1 and 2. 
remind us that Jesus steadfastly and courageously and willingly entered into the lion's den, we might say, as he made his way to Jerusalem, knowing exactly what that meant for him and knowing that that was where his enemies were and that they would take him and that he would suffer many things. They'll take him by trickery, but he will not be a helpless victim caught in a trap. He will allow himself, as we read in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, he will allow himself to be led as a lamb to the slaughter, and he will be silent. He will not open his mouth. He will give himself up. He will lay down his life freely for sinners as a sacrifice. As he said earlier in Mark 10, 45, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He, the suffering servant of the Lord, will not run from what he must do. He's not going to run from the suffering that awaits him. He will give his back to those who strike him. Reading again from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 50. He will give his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. He will not hide his face from shame and spitting. And we ask the question, why? Why? Certainly out of obedience to the Father, but also love for us. He would not turn back. He will give himself into the hands of these men out of love, love for sinners. He will even allow himself to be betrayed by one of his closest companions. And remember, he chose him. And he knew who Judas was and what he would do. So though he's grieved by his treachery and troubled in his spirit, he's not surprised. So Jesus allowed himself to be taken and betrayed by his close friend. And he did it for love. As he speaks of his burial in verse 8, she's done this to prepare me for my burial. He does this with calm, with calm resolve. He knows that what she has done is the only preparation like this that he will get, the only anointing for burial that he will get because he knows he's going to die, he's going to suffer as a common criminal. And criminals did not get the opportunity to have their bodies anointed. And he realizes that. And yet there's calm resolve to move forward. But he knows in all of this that he's going to triumph over death. He knows that the suffering and the death will also issue in the resurrection and his ascension. In fact, our text implies this in verse 9 when he says that this will be told what this woman has done. What does he say? When the gospel is proclaimed throughout all the world. If he stayed dead, there would be no gospel to proclaim. So our text implies that he knew that this suffering would end in victory and in triumph. So yes, we need to consider in our text here the bad monuments and the beautiful monuments that we see here of devotion to Christ. But let us not fail to see and to rejoice in this greatest of monument, the deep love of Christ, the boundless love of Christ for sinners, 
for us. We can ask the question, what sort of monument do we want to leave behind? How do you want to be remembered? Have you thought about that before? If you ask that question and you ask it honestly, you really try to answer it, I think it will tell you a lot about yourself, a lot about what you are seeking in life, about who or what you're serving, about who or what you are living for. How do you want to be remembered? What kind of monument do you want to leave behind? For believers, there's often a painful gap between our desires here and what's actually the case. So we long by God's grace to be everything that God wants us to be. The monument we want to leave behind looks like Christ, and yet we realize there's this gap in our lives because we continue to fall short. So, for example, we long to be like this woman and say, I want to have a heart for Jesus like this to give so freely and generously for my Lord. We want to be like that, but we find we're often like the critics of this woman and not the woman herself. And I could add many more examples to this. But we need to remember, the monuments of our lives as God's people are not ultimately about us, but about our Savior. They are about Christ Our monuments are about our Savior and what God has done in us, for us, through Christ our Lord. So yes, I want to be remembered as a godly man. I long to be remembered by you all, by my family, friends. I want to be remembered as a godly man, but not for my sake, but for Christ's sake, so that he might be glorified for my Lord and Savior who died for me, that I might live for him now, who died for you, that you might live for him now and live with him forever. So that's what it's about, our lives. I hope we all want to be godly, but ultimately, is it not that our lives would be like this woman whose life pointed so clearly to Christ and his worthiness, his supreme worthiness of all praise and glory and honor that she would do such a thing to him. That our lives would be for the one who, for our sakes, became poor, that we might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful picture that we have in your word. And we pray for greater understanding and help to meditate upon it. We thank you for the love of this woman and her devotion. Thank you for the grace that inspired it, your work in her and countless others who have given themselves in wholehearted devotion to Christ. And even to us that you have called us and saved us by your grace that you have put it in our hearts to serve you with our lives and to leave behind a legacy of godliness. Lord, we pray that our lives would be a monument to your grace, to your work in us, to the beauty of Christ, of his glory and of his power, of what he has done in laying down his life for sinners. 
And we pray for those here, as we do so often, who don't know Christ. And we long that their monument, their lives would not be a remembrance of disgrace and of rejecting the Savior. Lives of greed and of love of money, but of love for the Savior. And we pray that you would draw them, even use these bad monuments to awaken them. That they might see the path that leads to destruction clearly. So that they might see your mercy in Christ and go that path that leads to life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. May they see that tonight and believe it and embrace him. Pray in his name. Amen.